welcome back to the All of Us podcast. This is Hero, your host, and I'm back after a couple of weeks. And I think I'm going to talk about why it's been a couple of weeks. I really thought about whether or not I was going to not talk about this or talk about this. And my plan up until about 20 minutes ago was to kind of just jump into the conversation and semi-pretend that I hadn't been gone for two weeks. Um, But I don't think that that's the right thing to do, nor do I think it's in line with the ethos of this podcast and the message that I'm trying to send and all of that. So basically, for the past two or three weeks, I've been going through a really rough time. Um, Not every single day. It hasn't been catastrophic or anything like that. But it's been a very anxious time. Um, I've definitely had several crying breakdowns. There's been a lot of comparison and self-doubt and psychosomatic stuff with my health and my body. Needless to say, today we're in a great place. It's all going well. But yeah, the past couple of weeks have really been a rough time. And I don't think, I actually know that I'm not alone in having that experience because luckily I have come to be somebody who really leans on my community and the people that I trust around me when I'm going through a hard time like I've been going through. And I really take so much comfort in talking to friends about it and asking people for help. And if if they're going through something similar and I've come to find that a lot of people within my close tight-knit community are experiencing a somewhat similar sort of little wave of anxiety recently. But that's all to say that I think that it's really hard, especially when you're 25 years old um, and you're sort of trying to jump into a certain career path or you have a project that you're doing. It is so easy for any little thing to nudge you in the opposite direction and to make you feel like you're not worthy of the goal that you're pursuing or that you're the wrong person to be pursuing it or that you don't have the credentials or that it's not going to work out and that you should just kind of give up because there are already apparently so many people that we see every day on social media and around us that are doing the same things and maybe having more success than we are at this given point. So yeah, it's really tough. I experienced this in a crazy way. It is honestly why for the past couple of weeks I've felt so unmotivated to do this podcast. And that being said, this podcast is something that I do love doing and that I do feel deserving of and that I am worthy of having these conversations and spreading the message that I'm trying to spread. And I'm also somebody that thinks a lot about their own mental health and that is usually pretty good at keeping my comparison and self-doubt and all of those sort of self-flagellating thought cycles in check But sometimes it gets so overwhelming and just gets the best of me. And that's what was happening. Um, But here we are. We're back. I feel great. I'm doing my best. I think that talking about this is something that will do much more good than bad. Luckily, I'm the only one in charge of this podcast. I think that if I had some sort of producer or someone higher up that maybe was advising me in terms of like the future of the podcast and like having sponsorships and things like that maybe I would be advised to not discuss why I kind of just decided to step away for two weeks but luckily I'm not beholden to any of that kind of thing Um, and I can talk about it and I think it's useful for everyone to hear this kind of thing because We're all dealing with it. And just know that I'm doing my best. I think going forward, I will be much better at being consistent. Um, At least that's the goal. And I believe in myself and think I will be able to achieve it and stay on track. Anyways, today we have a really great person on the podcast. This conversation was recorded a couple of weeks ago. I actually think maybe... 
couple of months ago now because I recorded it right before I went to the Meadows. So it was very early March and it is with my therapist, Dr. Carter Stout. He is an author. He wrote the book Lost in Ghost Town, a memoir of addiction, redemption, and hope in unlikely places. And I actually discovered him by reading the book and then I reached out to him to I actually I don't remember if I reached out asking him to come on the podcast or if I reached out asking him to be my therapist but the thought process was first that I wanted to have him on the podcast and then after sort of talking to him and and um just like getting a sense of his vibe I immediately was like I want this guy to be my therapist. Maybe I hold off on having him on the podcast and we'll do that later. But first and foremost, I need his help and guidance. And he has been that person for me for, I think, almost two years now. And I've loved it. He's amazing. I really loved this conversation. We get into his sort of backstory and his lows and then his highs and then we talk about therapy in general um why it's sort of stigmatized and um how we can sort of rethink our experience with therapy and therapists today and then we go into a conversation about the soul he's a very spiritual guy um it's amazing and you will love it and listening to this conversation I just it was amazing I hadn't heard it since we recorded it and then this morning I had a very stressful morning which I'll talk about briefly and really needed something soothing and lovely and just therapeutic for lack of a a better descriptor but yeah I needed something to sort of like hold me and make me feel okay and I listened to this conversation and immediately felt all of that and I hope it brings the same sort of comfort and sense of support into your afternoon or morning or night or whenever you're listening to this Um, because it did it for me this morning I had a little procedure um, nothing really intense or serious but something very important and it was really stressful honestly I feel like we need to have another podcast episode at some point with maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll have on my doctor, the level of stress and anxiety that is caused by waiting in a medical office or in a procedure room, I don't know like exactly what you would call the specific, the room that procedures happen in. I was waiting in this room for, and I'm somebody that faints at medical things, whether it's having my blood drawn or even talking about medical procedures, it makes me really nauseous. And I waited in this procedure room with this paper gown on, laying on this paper mat on this plastic bed machine thing, looking up at the fluorescent lighting and seeing all of these like sharp, long, shiny metal instruments around me. I almost burst into tears three times. I actually burst into tears once. I FaceTimed my mom twice. Um, It was really intense. And I think this is something that needs to be talked about because there needs to be a shift in the medical environment space. It just needs to change. It's freezing cold. There's no warmth in color or temperature. It's very sharp feeling. It's terrible, and this needs to change. So that's my um, TED Talk for this afternoon that has nothing to do with the podcast episode, but I feel like a lot of you may agree. Anyways, this is the conversation between me and my therapist, Carter Stout. I hope you enjoy. Um, Well, it's so good to see you. I just spoke to you yesterday. I know. Because you're my therapist. So this is something that I feel like we need to discuss. I have, as you know, a lot of therapists on the podcast, but I feel like the people that I usually have on the podcast or the therapists that I usually have on the podcast, I have on because there's a very specific issue that they deal with that I would like to speak to them about. You, I just wanted on the podcast because you're a phenomenal therapist, but I also just like you as a person and 
thought it would be a really great conversation. But there are a few things that I think will make this interesting. The first one is that I think there's a really big stigma around people revealing who their therapist is. Like I know that before this, I talked to you about it and I was like, do we want to tell people that you're my therapist? Do we not? And I didn't even, when I thought about why I asked you, I don't know why that would ever be a question for me. I don't, like, I just feel like there's not a single reason why I wouldn't want someone to know who my therapist is. Um, again, though, and I'm not- you are, And you are in training to, uh, to become a therapist as well. Yes. Uh, in school now. And, and they have very specific types of ethical uh, concerns when you're in school that they teach you about. And um, personally, I think that uh, they're important, of course, because you want to always uh, keep confidentiality and, and the safety of your patients. But I also think that there's a lot of gray area uh, in, in this realm. And uh, I remember when I was in school, I had a teacher who I was doing a practicum with, and she told me that if she ever saw me out in the world, that she wouldn't acknowledge me. And I thought, I just thought that was very strange. And, and I ended up, I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I went to graduate school. And I saw her in the grocery store. And this is after I graduated. And I was right behind her in line. And she didn't turn around at all and say hello. And yeah. I thought, this is so odd that, uh, that there are these um, lines in place that some people just don't really feel comfortable crossing. So. It is weird. Yeah. My friend who lives in New York was saying that he was seeing a psychiatrist who is kind of like well-known in New York society. And she's written a book, like she's definitely a prominent New York psychiatrist, but she's definitely also like a society woman. Yeah. And he said that he was out at this dinner and that they were talking in a group of people and she introduced herself to him as if they had never met before. And she, he said that it was the strangest Strangest thing. Why, for people who don't know, is that a thing? I mean, I know because I'm in school and I'm learning about it, but even still, like, I definitely believe in, like, obviously to the extent that it's appropriate, but I believe in a lot of self disclosure and just like being open about everything. Why, for the people who don't know, is it such a big deal to have those sort of like boundaries and guidelines? Well, some therapists and some psychologists feel that it is incredibly important and they do not want to disclose anything about their lives. And they feel that the, the therapeutic bond should be one that's really about the client or about the patient. And uh, that anything about the therapist that's disclosed could be distracting or could uh, shift the power dynamic in a, in a, in a way. And that's, that um, that the session really should be about the life of the person who is working with the therapist and not about the therapist. Now, mm -hmm. I personally uh, work in a way, I think that when you become a psychologist, you create within the, the guidelines of what you learn uh, is appropriate. I think you create your own, you fashion your own, way in which you proceed. And, and I've always, you know, I wrote a book a few years ago about my life that really was a taking the covers off and was full disclosure about my childhood and about my drug addiction and about this uh, relationship I had with a family in Venice, California. And the book is available for anyone to buy. And most of my patients have read it. Yeah, I found you through the book. That's right. And so in terms of my own life, it's not a big secret that I have yeah. to keep. And my patients do ask me about certain elements of my life. And, and I've always thought that a way to connect with my patients um, more fully is through the lens of, of shared experience. If there are similarities that we've had in our relationships with our parents or the trauma of our childhood, that that is always an entry point to make a connection and, and strengthen the therapeutic bonds. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, some therapists don't agree with that though. And some therapists really don't favor revealing anything about themselves to their clients. And uh, so it's really about personal preference. Yeah, I guess for me, it's out the window because I have like me talking about my entire everything on this podcast. And then, yeah, it's very revealing. Well, I think it, it, my understanding and my belief is that the best therapists work out, out of their own wounding. And, yeah. you know, there's the, the archetype of the wounded healer uh, who is the therapist. And I certainly believe that that is an effective way to work. And um, so revealing some of that wounding to people that you're working with, I think, creates an opening for a deeper bond. And so I'm, I'm a believer in that. Yeah, I just think that there's this huge sort of trend of, quote, like, my therapist doesn't understand me. Or, like, I just know that there are so many friends of mine or just people that will, like, sit and go to therapy, especially people that don't really know. Like, I've definitely had a really big understanding of what it is to be in therapy since I was really young. Mm -hmm. And luckily, I've always had pretty good therapists so that right away when I had one that I didn't really – like, I I remember finding a new one when I was, like, 17 or something or 18 – and it took, I went through like, I had, I met with like six therapists and there were some that I just sat and sat with for a session. And I was like, this is never going to work. Like I just, it's not happening. And I just, no. and it's lucky to be able to recognize that and also act on that because I think a lot of people take, like they think therapy is supposed to be a good thing, but they don't really know how it's supposed to feel. And I think a lot of people when they don't know how something is supposed to feel, are afraid to go with their gut and they just kind of like continue with something because it should be working. And so I think because of that, a lot of people sit with these therapists that they don't really resonate with. And because, or because of that, somebody has good credentials or totally. recommended by a family member or by a friend and they yeah. end up working with somebody that's not effective and not helping them in the way that. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people, because something seems like what they should be doing, they don't like at the end of the day, I think with most things, like your gut will tell you what the right thing is. I don't think that there's any, I don't know, like a lot of people ask me how I see a male therapist and how that works. And I'm like, it just does. Like yeah. <laughs> we talk about everything. It just works. That's right. Um, and I've seen like many female therapists that I'm like, this is never going to work. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting. Were you, when, where did your sort of like foray into therapy begin yourself? Not as with becoming a therapist, but when did you sort of, I guess I'm like kind of trying to get into your, where your mental health journey began. Into my story. Yeah. Well, I think for me, I struggled with depression and grief and childhood trauma for many years in my young adult life, my probably my teenage years in my young adult life. And uh, the way that I soothed myself was through um, drugs and alcohol for many years. And I was confused and I was, felt very alone. And I didn't really recognize that, 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 reaching out and asking for help and talking to someone would be beneficial for me. And so I internalized a lot of my psychological pain. And because of uh, my appetite for substances, I ultimately ended up going into treatment. And I went to a place in Arizona called The Meadows Mm -hmm. and uh, learned about trauma there. And it was my first real foray into um, the world of, of mental health. And how old were you when you went better. when you went to do that? I was, I think I was thirty three at the time okay. when I went into treatment. And uh, after the initial thirty days, I went to a secondary facility in Santa Fe, New Mexico, called the Life Healing Center. And while I was there, I met some really amazing therapists in training and got to know them um, and really become friends with them while I was there. 
and they recommended that I consider applying to school, to graduate school. And uh, I had been involved in the film industry for the decade previous, and I was living in Los Angeles, and I recognized at that time that it really wouldn't be safe for me to return to LA and try and continue my uh, the same trajectory of my life. So I mm -hmm. thought, well, maybe it would be a good idea to, to give myself a pause and go back to school. And so I took some classes at a local community college for a year, and then I applied to this graduate school and uh, got in. And that's really where it started. Um, I went to this really amazing non-traditional program in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and a lot of the a lot of the books that we were reading were about depth psychology and alternative types of healing. Um, there were sweat lodges that we had at the school, and there were talking circles, and we, you know, held the talking sticks. There was a lot of uh, interest in, in Native American healing rituals and culture. So it wasn't sort of your traditional clinical psychology track that you would take somewhere. And it was perfect for me because I was very interested in, in that sort of stuff. And, um, and I realized then that I, for many years, one of the reasons I think that I had gone awry and gone on the path of addiction was that I really didn't feel as though I had a sense of purpose in my life. And that sense of purpose really began to be instilled in me when I was in school. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I worked really hard and really lost myself in the process. And uh, that was the beginning for me. Did you... And I'm going to ask questions as if I've never read the book because sure. I'm assuming people that are listening probably haven't. And if you don't, I mean, I would say if like, I don't, it's, it's funny to ask these questions because you are my therapist and it feels like I'm crossing some sort of boundary, but then you've written about it in this book that I've read. So it's fine. Please, please when I would just like to talk about some of the moments that you felt like you would really hit, like you were bottoming out because a lot of the things that you talk about in your books, like addiction and like your relationship to food, even at some points mm -hmm. because of my own journey. And then the journey of my, some of my like key family members with like addiction and then with myself with food, like I resonate with so many different aspects of your experiences. What did some of sort of like the lowest points look like for you that indicated like, this is not because for a lot of people, dealing with substance abuse and any a little like some issues with like your relationship to your body and with food and all of it's kind of like par for the course with like just like living life like living life and especially mm -hmm. in LA or like a big city or something like that and especially with the industry that you were in and I think it takes a certain level of um like bottom to recognize like I need to make a giant life shift yeah. and I'm curious to know what that was for you yeah, well, it was, you know, I, I went from being a producer in the film industry in New York City and living in a penthouse apartment in Soho and having a lot of friends and entertainment and a very active social life to a few years later being in Venice, California and pretty much having lost everything. Um, at age 30, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a bank account. I didn't have a computer. And I was being evicted from my apartment, all because of my, uh, my addiction. Every last dollar was spent on, on sort of feeding the, the monster in me. And um, the one thing that I did have still was this beat up old car. And because I had the car, I was introduced to uh, someone in Venice who needed someone to drive them around. So I became a driver for this guy in Venice. And I thought, well, this, is, this, this would be a way for me to not only get substances, but also make a little money 
And what ended up happening is that I became really close friends with him. And he was an ex-gang member who was a drug dealer. And so I drove him around for close to a year. And he invited me into his family. And he lived with his grandmother. And so I had this sort of surrogate family that brought me in. And even though I was involved in this nefarious activity on the west side of Los Angeles, I still felt as though I, there was a level of connection that I was feeling with them and a, and, and a level of love and acceptance that I had always missed from my own family. And they um, ultimately began to teach me that I was a good person again. And, uh, and that was the really major turning point for me. Uh, the biggest shift was kind of recognizing once again, after many years of, of despair and loneliness and depression and suicidal ideation, that deep down there was this light in me and that I was, I was a good person. And, and it was through uh, that recognition from this family in Venice that, that I rediscovered that. And the family, like you were still engaging in substance use during this time, right? In the beginning I was, but by the end of it, I wasn't anymore. So I, I really believe wholeheartedly that the interactions with that family are what ultimately led to me becoming sober. And I've been sober now for 17 years. It's amazing. And it's, it's I think, because I grew up in AA meetings, so I've heard so many of these stories of people that like grew up like in an upper class family, went to like Ivy League schools, had their life all together, and then end up essentially homeless in Venice. That for me is like a familiar type of narrative. And I think for a lot of people that haven't grown up in AA, it seems like that level of bottom only exists on like, especially I think for a lot of the listenership of like this podcast, which is very niche. Like I think for a lot of it, like it seems like something that you would see on like Euphoria or something or like some TV show, but it is like a Hollywood story or totally, but it's so real. But I think yeah. for a lot of people, it just seems like, okay, if you grow up in a certain way, go to a certain college, live in a certain like type of apartment or place, it's like yeah, life can go that way for you. I don't think it really, it, your socioeconomic status is a determinant of how far you can go down the ladder. Yeah. And, uh, it more has to do with how you feel about yourself. And, um, and once the chemicals get into your system, then you form a dependency that's really hard to break. It's not only a physical, but it's a psychological dependency. How did your family react during that time? Were you like in contact with any of them or? They, you know, my mother, uh, God rest her soul, was an alcoholic actively. Mm -hmm. And she, of course, worried about me, but I was out of contact with her and I was out of contact with my sisters and my brother and all of my friends. I mean, I really went underground and, um, and they, they talk about, at least my sisters do now that, that when they saw me, the last time they saw me each time that they saw me, they thought to themselves that this may be the last time. And they set boundaries with me and didn't really want to be part of my life during that time, which I totally understand. And, but it was a very lonely period for me. And that's why when I met this family that lived in, in the Oakwood neighborhood of Venice, they really took me in and really nursed me back to health. Um, so I, I feel so, so fortunate. And the, uh, What's interesting is that I narrowly made it through that experience and something about really falling down to the depths of what people consider a bottom, I think has given me this new understanding about the possibility to get through essentially anything. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really try and instill in the people that I work with that, you know, that, that, that there's always 
when you feel like you've hit a bottom, there's always a trap door and you can always go down deeper, but you can always climb out of it as well. Yeah. And, and reestablish and reinvent your life. And, um, you know, that was my experience. Yeah. I think it's amazing because I, it's definitely a, a difficult, I, like with my, myself and my mom and some of my siblings, like I know that, um, for those of us that have dealt with certain types of addiction, my thing being is definitely a certain type of addiction as well. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for the like absolute lowest point that I was at, because I don't think that without being there, I would be where I am now. And I'm, I really, the parts of myself that I'm most proud of and love the most um, come from that place and what I've learned from there. And I think that can be a sort of difficult, it's a difficult thing to say to people like, oh, I really love the part of myself that was at the lowest depths of my addiction because people can like, be like oh it's like encouraging addiction and it's saying that it's like glorifying um it's glorifying it but I think like you're somebody that really when I when I have spoken with you about like loving and adoring that side of myself that mm-hmm. is sort of darker and prone to those behaviors you completely understand it and I think it is what makes you um a therapist that that I think is so wonderful and I resonate with and um, that I hope well, to be like yeah, I very much believe in, in what you're saying, which is that we are imperfect beings and we have our, our spiritual nature and we have our humanity and we have our ego. And so we're uh, fallible beings and, um, and we have uh, parts of ourselves that are certainly formed by uh, coping mechanisms from earlier earlier periods in our life when we experience pain or suffering or rejection or loss or abandonment and so there part of the human experience is feeling angry or feeling resentful or feeling sad um, feeling disillusioned feeling lost and those parts of ourselves should not be considered weaknesses or shouldn't be considered bad parts of ourselves. And and we should really try and look at them with compassion and with love Mm -hmm. and embrace them. Um, I know that it is kind of a a strange concept for some to think of addiction or, or of anger as um, a, a part of yourself that you could love. But what I would say is that that's where the real healing takes place is if you don't judge yourself and you don't criticize yourself for those parts and for the actions that that have have you've partaken in in the past and to look at them and really wrap your arms around those parts those, those wounded parts of you and um, I feel as though when we give those parts the attention that they need and that they deserve that they tend to recede into the background yeah and yeah, completely. I think that something that makes a lot of sense to me is um I forget where I heard it, but the the addictive behavior, the addiction isn't the disease, it's a symptom of something much deeper that's causing it. And I know for me it took me a long time to understand why I was so addicted to this like controlling behavior around food and around making my body a certain like level of fragile. And I've come to really understand what it is. Um, in that, like, I have a certain amount of shame around, um, like taking up space with my body because of certain things when I was younger. And I have a certain attachment to feeling physically delicate and physically frail because I feel like there have been a lot of times where when I didn't look that way physically, I was treated with too much, um, I've talked to you about this, obviously, but I, and I mentioned it in the previous episode with Will, see you, but that like, I, all of a sudden when I was a certain size and I made myself look a certain level of frail, Mm -hmm. I experienced a certain level of like gentleness from other people, um, and a lack of like harshness and like putting emotional weight on me where Mm -hmm. I became addicted. Like I, I, 
it was revealed to me that I liked um, looking at, like I couldn't handle a lot emotionally or physically. And so that's why I was being restrictive with food. It wasn't because I didn't like food. I love food. Right. Um, it was yeah. because I wanted to feel a certain way. So that being said, like I didn't have an eating, dis- like I don't think the eating disorder just like exists as an eating disorder mm-hmm. to, to me. Like, I don't, I don't know your opinion. Like, I don't think anyone just like likes to restrict themselves nutrients. No. I think it comes from a very deep, deep place that is the actual issue. Of course. And that's course. the thing that you want to love and wrap your arms around. It's not yeah. the actual um, like eating disorder that you're like, I love that for me. It's like, no, I don't love that for me, but I love and want to nurture and care for the part of me that needs that to mm-hmm. show. Like, I feel like, you know, when you have some sort of ailment, like when your body hurts mm-hmm. and it, it's not just hurting to hurt, like your leg just doesn't start aching to ache. It's aching because it's trying to tell you that there is something going on in your body. I think that's kind of the same thing with like an addictive behavior or some sort of yeah, like an addiction. I think that it's it's this external thing that your body starts doing and that your brain starts doing to signify something much deeper. What do you think about that? I well, I agree with you. I uh, it's interesting. I just um, sold my my second book. Yes, I want to talk about that too. What is it called? It's called. Are you allowed we to say? Are all addicts. Uh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> yes, we are. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is really demystify this idea of addiction as something that is other. And the book really focuses on the fact that um, the way that I (laughs) perceive addiction as somebody who really has had all sorts of addictions in my life um, is that it's really simply a an obsessive and compulsive loop and so when we obsess about something and then it leads to some sort of compulsive action then we are caught in a cycle (coughs) and this can take place not only with the traditional um, types of addiction that that most people know about like drugs or alcohol but it uh it 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 definitely expands into the realm of food and of relationships, of anger, of success, of money, of um, exercise. And so uh, technology is a big one right now. And so I believe that we all as human beings have these tendencies and that they shouldn't be looked upon as these character flaws that are uh, that we can point our finger at and be judgmental of, e- even if they're in our in ourselves. Um, that they should be accepted as a part of the human experience. And and you know simply, and I give an example in the book of 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 someone who you know might like sugar a lot and they've bought a bag of cookies and they are not really hungry, but the cookie is sort of calling out to them and they see it there in the cookie jar and they go and they eat it. And that in, in, in my definition of addiction is um, fits the um, fits the mold of what I'm talking about, which is just an obsession of the mind followed by a compulsion of, of the body. And How would you distinguish though? Like, cause I, I think a lot of people get confused with it with like how to recognize addiction. Like when something becomes just like wanting a cookie or maybe even two cookies and letting yourself have it even routinely. And then when that becomes like an addictive behavior, cause I don't even think that it has to be like, quantity related. I think that there can just be a certain level of like emotional attachment and like soothe it, like, like weight. I don't know. I think that it doesn't have to do with like this many cookies or like this much many cigarettes. It really depends on how much mental energy it's consuming. There you go. Yes. If you are thinking about it obsessively and repetitively, 
Mm-hmm. And the only way to dispel those thoughts is to go and do the action of eating the cookie or putting the cookies away somewhere. Then you are caught in a cycle of addiction. Yeah, because there are people that like count calories and diet and are, like go through moments of like being on a really strict food regimen that like I don't think have addictive behavior around dieting and restricting in food. I think they're just trying to reach a certain goal. Whereas like if I engage in the same behavior, it is much more all consuming. So mm-hmm. I think, yes, I definitely agree with, with that definition. I, I think that, yeah, there, there's a difference between addiction and having healthy relationships with food. Mm-hmm. And I think that most people, unfortunately, in our culture, in Western culture, don't have a healthy relationship with food. You don't think so? I don't think so. Yeah. No. I mean, most of the, the patients that I work with have some, uh, you know, belief that food is going to contribute in some way to their lives that they, it brings fear into their lives. Mm. If they're eating too much of it, or if they're eating too much salt, or if they're eating too much sugar, or if they're, you know, wanting to not have meat in their life, that it becomes this dance between what they feel guilty about and what they don't feel guilty about. And, um, and, so I think that it, um, you know, you, you just have to turn on the television and you see advertisements for diet plans and celebrities endorsing these diet plans. And um, this idea that being smaller or being thinner is more attractive. And so there is this, this cultural aspect to it as well that, um, that's a very strong message that I think um, we receive when we become cognizant of our own bodies and our own selves, which I think happens in adolescence. Oh um, my God. Totally. I mean, I, again, in my, in my last, in the last episode, I talked about like the first time that I was aware of like my size being my, I was really little. I was like six or something. And my stepmom, like so he always said I had a dinner table and somebody pointed out, my size, like I was eating, I had like a plate full of pasta and someone at the dinner table was like, what should we do about this? She's only eating starch and like only, and then somebody, I think it was my brother who was like, she shouldn't be like, you shouldn't be commenting on her food. Like she's so little. And my stepmom said, look at her, like she can handle it. Like, look at her. And so I was like, look at me. Like, what, what do you mean? So all of a sudden my size was like related to how much like I could handle when like things being said to me and like that my body was like a topic of conversation. It was very strange. But then I was telling my mom the other, the other day that, um, when I was in elementary school, this was after that comment. Cause I think honestly, I became like very body conscious from a really young age because of moments like that. And, um, when I was in elementary school during like the moving up day, like when you would go from third to fourth grade, they had this thing where you would all sit around in a circle and like the parents were there and the, like your class teacher would stand behind you and say like a couple of adjectives that like your classmates had come up with for you to like celebrate you and be like, this is hero. She's joyful, creative. I will never forget one of the words. I think I was going from like second to third grade one of the words that they said for me was bubbly. And obviously they meant like my personality, like a bubbly personality. I wanted to burst out into tears because immediately I thought that they were like talking about my body. And I was like seven or something. Yeah, I was like really little, but I was like horrified that they would describe me as being bubbly. And it just goes to show like I was so little. And like, even then I was just like, I couldn't, believe that this was said about me. Um, but yeah, just, yeah, I think it does show that like from such a young age, we have this idea of like our body and what we're supposed to look like and like how small we're supposed to be, especially as like women and all of that. It's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 there's also a real obsessive compulsive loop that a lot of people experience now. Once again, I think mainly in Western culture around looking younger trying to look younger. Mm-hmm. And so people getting uh, plastic surgery and Botox and uh, fillers and, you know, trying to achieve this static place where 
they look a certain age for the the, the remaining years um, of their life, and um, it's become so prevalent now that uh, that it's not uncommon to see people really look distorted because of the totally. amounts of of things that they're doing to themselves, and uh, it's really sad and unfortunate, you know, and really contradicts the message that I am trying to convey as a therapist, which is to embrace yourself and to love yourself for who you are and for how you look and that, that everyone is, um, is created the way that they are supposed to be created. And you should allow yourself to evolve and grow and age naturally. I think that what that comes from is like I'm, I'm learning a lot of in like developmental psychology. I'm learning a lot about ageism and how, and I was actually talking to my mom again about this the other day with women or people in general, but I think women experience a lot of anxiety around this and it, it does lend to all the plastic surgery and the filler and all of that, that it, then this is very separate from people my age getting a lot of facial reconstruction because that happens a lot and it's crazy. Um, but with the kind of like middle-aged women, when you pass a certain age, 17, 18, 19, 20, that are getting Botox. Oh, full. My dermatologist the other week told me that I should start getting Botox around my eyes for preventative reasons. And I was like, I'll pass. No, thank you. Um, yeah, was fully suggested that she was like, you could really use a little, little Botox on your eyes. I was like, I was like, I look like I'm 12, like, please help me. Um, but I think a lot of women feel like, and I think it is true, sadly, that like when women pass a certain age, they feel invisible, especially mm-hmm. because like we live in this visual culture of like really, really quote unquote, like hot women everywhere in the media. And there's this like image that's like perpetually like put everywhere of like what, like these beautiful women. And like, there are so many of them and like, mm-hmm. they're all young and flawless. And, and then women are going to, and, and men are going to have more freedom and more opportunity if they are paid attention to and seen more in a certain totally. way. But like real women, like natural, real women, when they pass a certain age, I think feel like very invisible and it's really like horrifying. It's so sad. And it goes into this whole ageism thing that I think is only being propagated because of this like body dysmorphic collective you know, mentality. Like there's a lot of, um, and I'm a family man, I'm, I'm married and I have two children. And um, when I reached a certain age, I think for me, it was important to have that essentially that that platform on which to grow old with and to have um, the security of a family. And, and that has helped a lot, I feel, in, in me accepting how I look and, and how I'm aging because I'm not trying necessarily to attract attention to myself or to impress anyone because I know that I, I feel secure within the, the love that I have for my, for my immediate family and my um, friends accept me for who I am as well. And so I think that, um, that when you find people and you can bring them into your orbit that really love you for who you are and accept you for who you are, that that helps to, to counter that strong message that you have to be a certain way or look a certain way to get recognized. It's funny because that loops back to you finding solace and meaning and light within yourself when you had that family in Venice. Yes. Um, that like really at the core of everything, when you ha- when you feel supported, even by a couple of people, when you feel really held, mm-hmm. I think you it really becomes clear what is important and your like inner very true essential value as a human being kind of shines through not only to yourself, but to the people around you. And it sort of pulls you out of whether it's like addiction or anxiety, just like I told you yesterday, I've been feeling like going through periods of like crazy crippling anxiety. But when I feel like for me this weekend, it was going out to my horses and feeling Mm -hmm. like 
truly connected with by this like tribe of horse people, like my trainer and my horse friends. More accepted than being with your horses that love you unconditionally and you love them unconditionally. Yeah. And like my trainer and a couple other people and like that to me. And I had been like very social going out, seeing like lots of friends before that, but I was feeling like crazy anxiety. And then the second I like went out there and felt like truly connected with by this small group of people, I was like so still all of a sudden. And like it was, it became very clear to me again, like this is what's important to you. This is how, what makes you feel good. Just like let all the dust around you settle a bit mm-hmm. and like quiet down. And I was, and I felt so. What truly is important to you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, other people's opinions of you or your own opinion of yourself. And I think that I always measure success. And I talk to my patients about this, about not not how big someone's bank account is or the accolades they've received in work or the recognition that they've received, but how they feel about themselves when they're lying in their bed at night before they go to sleep. Yeah. Well, that's all all that matters. Really, it's all that matters. You arrive alone and you you leave alone. Are you feeling connected to yourself and to your highest good and to your soul? And that's something that I love to talk about um the soul and uh, i write a lot about it in in the book that's coming out this year and uh the idea that we do have a soul and you know not speaking theoretically um or or not indoctrinated in in any religious sense but it is um the way that I perceive a soul is synonymous with our authentic self or our highest good. And I feel as though we come into the world and we're very soul minded and very soul attached and very soul oriented. And we are trusting and we're very loving and we're very uh, curious and we're very creative as these young little humans. And then when we experience the the pain, the, 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 the fears that come with early childhood when our parents leave for too long and leave us in the crib or when we experience confusion or when we get hurt, then the world essentially starts to, our perception shifts that, that the world is an unsafe place and we start to move away from this very pure consciousness. We're almost like educated away from our soul. Right. And so we move and most people through the trajectory of their lives move very far away from that authentic voice, Mm -hmm. but the voice is still inside of them. It's just covered up um, with layers and layers and layers of traumatic experience of emotional trauma of, of, you know, the trauma of loss, the trauma of rejection, the trauma of self-consciousness all of these things add up and people in their young adulthood and, you know, into their uh, adulthood uh, realize that they're, or or perhaps don't realize that they're so far away from who they really are as spiritual beings. And so one of the things that I try to do with my patients is try and help them to remember and to reconnect with that much younger place inside of them. And uh, because it's still in all of us, um, but sometimes you have to, you know, take a hammer and chisel out and and uh, break through some of the layers that you've created. And the human experience that I'm talking about, I feel like is encapsulated by ego. So we have the soul and we have the ego and we're vacillating back and forth between the two of them for most of our lives. And the people that are more soul oriented are the ones that I have always been drawn to as the happiest people, as the most fulfilled people, as the people that are actualizing into their true potential, um, that have quieted the ego mind. Yeah. One of the first assignments that you gave me, I think it was like our first session was you had me, I think, write to myself or draw or like do some sort of like thing where I was drawing as my younger self or I was journaling as my young, like little self. And my mom actually just told me, because I'm going to the Meadows, just like you went to the Meadows, I'll be going in a couple of weeks. She told me about some of what you are 
looked like that they have you do. And she said that they have you or something that she, cause she also went, um, several years, a couple of years ago was they have you write to yourself in your non-dominant hand. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like your child writing and you're writing as your young self. Mm-hmm. I think it's an amazing exercise to reconnect you with that, like most Absolutely. pure form of yourself. How would you say, um, I mean, it's a giant question, but what would you say are some of the biggest steps to be taken in terms of like walking back to that soul self and kind of like walking away from the ego, if even if for a moment? I think that it starts with a recognition that there is truth to this idea. Mm. So an awareness that perhaps you have been living a life that is more dominated by ego and that there is a different way to be. And, you know, I like to give an example of when a dog lover sees a puppy and they bend down and, you know, give it a little pat and the puppy is just alive with love and happiness and the feeling that that we have in that moment and I like to call that having a soul moment Mm -hmm. where like everything else is stripped away and you are in that moment very present with that little beautiful being that is beaming at you with love and you're feeling that love reciprocating to that little little puppy. And I say that that is a soul moment. And so if you can encapsulate that and think of, well, that, you know, in that moment, I was in my highest good. I was not insecure. I wasn't thinking about the future. I wasn't filled with anxiety. I was just purely present in that moment with that other being. And it felt amazing. And that is when we're really connected to our soul. So recognizing what those moments are sometimes it could be just like laughing uproariously with a friend that you haven't seen in a while and and just having like one of those out-of-body humorous experiences where you're just have the giggles and you think wow that felt so great and I would say in that moment you are really connected to the soul because the soul is is full of laughter and full of love and full of humor and full of curiosity and full of generosity and um and that's a side that we all have inside of us um but we uh through our lived human experience tend to latch on to our fear and our our sadness and these other elements that are really entrenched in the ego very very strongly Yeah. I think that that's what I get from riding and why riding has been always like, so like spiritually important to me is because like, I'm lucky. I'm so lucky that I get to do it. And then I get to have these like moments with my horses where I'm not only with them, but riding. And I kind of like, don't think about anything else. Like I feel like I sometimes will get like critical when my meditation, like I honestly like recently haven't really been meditating a lot in terms of like sitting and being in silence meditating, but I feel more like blissed out on meditation than I have in a long time because I'm spending so much time riding. Um, and that to me is the highest. Example. I mean, you and your love of horses and your feeling of connectivity when you're out there and the fact that you basically put the blinders on from everything else going on in your life and you are solely wholly focused on being with that animal and you know exchanging that real tenderness with that beautiful animal that is really a perfect example of of being in soul i think people though because like i so recognize it as that and i feel so lucky to get to do that but i think a lot of people like it's not something everybody can do i like have a schedule that allows me to do it. I also have like horses that I can ride. It's like so rare, but I feel like people who maybe don't, and like, that's, I think too, why people get very connected to like their various sports, like cycling is a meditation for some people running, like it can be anything. But I think even for people who don't have a, a lot of time, like 
I think just having a laugh with a friend on the phone, like those moments too, kind of like can lead you to the same thing. Cause I can only imagine like, there are so many people that are in this like work cycle or like some kind of cycle where they feel so like bogged down by ego and these responsibilities and they feel like they don't have anything to that. Like, I'm sure there are probably people who would listen to this and be like, well, I can't have a moment of connectivity like that. I'm like so busy and I do this and I'm like distracted all day, but it's like, it can be so simple. A commitment like that. That, That's just an example that you have in your life. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, you know, I have the luxury of having a few hours in the morning, every morning where I go and do my spiritual practice. And one of the things that where I feel really connected to my soul is when my feet are touching the earth. And I happen to live in a community up in the mountains, um, next to Malibu (laughs) in California. And it's, I'm extremely fortunate to live here. And so every day I go for a walk up on the trails in bare feet and I connect to mother earth and I feel the polarity of the earth come through me. And it's this like incredibly rejuvenating experience. And that to me really quiets the mind and allows me to be present. And I try to appreciate all of the natural elements that are around me, the trees, the bushes, the, the sky, the clouds, the sun, and um, and that really reconnects me. And another thing that I do, which is um, something that I recommend to people is to consider that our soul has a very distinct consciousness and it likes to be acknowledged. And so if you can establish some sort of a rapport with your soul. Mm. And, um, you know, what I do is I uh, have a conversation with it. I actually speak to my soul during the day and ask my soul to guide me and to speak through me and to fill me with love and to fill me with, with wisdom. And I feel as though when I do that, my soul responds and breaks through that, you know, that, layer of ego that may have formed just in the 24 hours since the last time I did the exercise yeah, and gives me kind of a fresh start. So for me, it's kind of a daily practice where I really try and tune in with that consciousness. And, um, and it really has been so important for me in my healing process and my ability to work with others. Yeah. That's amazing. I've never, I definitely have various little like connectivity exercises that I do, but I've never really, I, I, one of the, like I talk to myself for sure. And like my body, but never for me, my dialogue with myself has mostly, especially in the last years has um, really centered around like talking to my body and it's mostly talking to my body, not asking questions of my body and like asking my body to like guide or my soul. I'm usually say like putting things on, not asking if that makes sense. Like I'm not asking for guidance. I'm like more affirming, mm-hmm. um, like saying, I love you. Which is also beautiful, which yeah. Is- it's what I've needed, I think, but it's interesting to hear that yours is more like an asking thing, which is I think like the next level of evolved. I've learned uh, through my own experience and working with so many people that that asking and speaking out loud and asking out loud for things is um, is a really important way to take care of ourselves. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. To reach out and to ask for help when you need help. And I ask my soul for help every day. I say, you know... Um, Help me to release all of my anger. Help me to release my my resentments. And I find that um, that after I've had this dialogue, I feel so much more available to do the work that yeah. uh, that you're learning how to do and studying to do, and that I've been doing now for for many years. No, that's amazing to hear, I think, especially because, um, I mean, in the community of like spiritually aware 
people that like I'm surrounded by, like in LA, I think it can get kind of like, and I think just not only here, but in general, there's this sort of like wellness community. That's like, it's a very big thing to like ask the universe and ask the cosmos and like Mm -hmm. ask your higher power. But I think the last thing we hear is to ask ourselves. And I Mm -hmm. think there's this sort of like, we're forgetting that like the biggest power that we have that we know is within us already. And it's not like, we don't need to like ask the universe and ask the stars and like this higher power that's out there. Like we can just, I think it's, it's within us. And I think the soul is exactly like what that thing is that we're, that we can be asking. It's already, that we already have. I agree. I totally agree that it, it, it's really important. The shift really in consciousness is to recognize that there is a soul that is a part of you. Yeah. That, and to remember that it's a, it's a remembrance it's a looking backwards and it's a regression into an earlier more pure frame of mind that's unencumbered by all of these experiences that we've had as we grow into from children into adults and to try and find that place within us that's really constructed and and beaming with that real beauty and that purity that that we all possess and um and you're absolutely right it 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 lives within each of us and you know i would say that it's the divine imprint in each of us Mm. so however you whatever your perception of spirituality is and whatever your belief system is it's that it's that imprint that stamp that makes each one of us unique yeah yeah i agree i think that's been a a beautiful theme of this whole conversation is connectivity with yourself and then with with the people around you and that really being the biggest source of of soul and healing and everything and it's it's been such a treat to have you to have you on here and to to talk to you in this way it's amazing thank you and i need to i need you to have you back on too because it's so funny in like preparing for like briefly preparing for this conversation. I, I haven't like looked at your website or like your stuff in so long since we started. Yeah. And we've, we, even in our sessions, we've never talked about dreams and you are a yeah. dream analyst, That's right? right. We need that. to talk about this. I have crazy dreams, yeah. wild. And we've never talked about them. I think we need to do a part two and we can just have Absolutely. it be a dream. I, I would welcome that and love to come back on. Okay, amazing. Well, thank you so, so much. And I'll I'll talk to you on Monday. (laughs) Thanks, Zero. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.